0: Kate Moss is the author of the best selling book Labyrinth, a book about archaeology, love, and mystery set in contemporary and medieval France. It's about Alaise and Alice, whose destinies are linked. Kate has another book called Sepulchre, also set in modern and medieval France, which links her characters Meredith Martyr and Leonie Vernier. Kate's books are described as well researched, absorbing historical mysteries with wonderful interlinking female characters. Kate has also written a non fiction book in its sixth edition called Becoming a Mother, and two other novels, Crucifix Lane and Eskimo Kissing. She's also co founder of the Orange Prize for Fiction, which selects female authors from around the world each year. Kate lives in the United Kingdom. Thanks for joining us today, Kate.
1: Uh, hi, it's a pleasure.
0: Now, your books, there's so much of France in them. Why does France feature so heavily in your books?
1: Well, I live part of the year in, in Carcassonne in the southwest of France. And my stories, which are, I suppose are good old-fashioned adventure stories, are completely inspired by that landscape. So if you like, the landscape is like a stage set and then you start to want to put characters on it and make them walk about the place. So, you know, the writing and the place is completely linked for me. Mm.
0: And that your last two books have been historical fiction. Why are you interested in that kind of genre?
1: I love the idea that most of the things that we want to understand about today, about the present day, if you learn your history well enough and go back to the past, you can see the answers there. And so I write stories that are called time-slip novels that go backwards and forwards between two periods of time. So in Labyrinth, it's 13th century France and modern France. And in Sepulchre, it's fin de France, so the 1890s and the modern day. And it's really a way of saying, you know, this is the story of the past. But you know what? Those people, they were like you and me. They might have worn different clothes, they might have had different expectations, they might have had different pressures upon them, but actually they still feel the same things that we do. In my part of France, in the southwest, which is about you know near the border with Spain, I suppose, the history is everywhere. You, the, the modern day is lived in the shadow of the, the past. Um, there's the buildings... The history, the books, everything sort of seems to exist in these two different places. So it was a natural thing to try to capture some of that in my in my novels.
0: Yeah, and with Labyrinth, eight hundred years separates your characters, Ale and Alice. What inspired this novel? And, you know, why did you decide to have them, um, you know, interweave their stories in that way?
1: Well, I think um, my medieval heroine, Alaïs, is um, about 17 when the story starts. And it's set against the backdrop of the crusade against uh, the southwest of France, which was launched in 2009 by the French king and the Catholic pope. Mm. And although it was fought in the name of God, it was, (laughs) you'll not be surprised to hear this, actually a sort of an invasion, really. It was about land, it was about wealth, it Mm. was about culture. And it was a turning point in European history. And for me, I wanted to bring that history to life, this crusade against a particular group of Christians called the Cathars, um, who were wiped out in this crusade. And it was the reason the Inquisition was founded You know, all over the world, to get rid of the Cathars. Um, in 13th century France. And so what I wanted to do was tell that period of history, which is so much a part of the character of, of the part of France we live in. Alaïs lives in the Chateau Contal in Carcassonne. I see that from my bedroom window every day I open mm. the shutters. So for me, it's bringing, you know, my adopted hometown to life. But the reason I have a modern component is because we live in the modern day. Mm. And I wanted to bring in some of the excitement that I feel about history, about this period of history. But you cannot do that quite so much if you only write historical fiction. Mm. And so my novels in the UK, they're not called historical fiction. They're known as time slip novels. Um, And they're known as adventure stories, if you like, Mm. Um, and normally put in thriller the thriller category, rather than the historical fiction category, because of the modern side of things, which very much works as a thriller. And the idea is really that its story goes backwards and forwards in time, and it's that the clues that are set in the historical period of sepulchre and labyrinth are unraveled and discovered in the modern day. And of course, the modern heroines discover that the past is far from dead and buried, and those secrets still have a bite in them.
2: Mm.
0: Now, I know that you obviously, because you live there, you live and breathe the setting. But apart from that, do you do a great deal of research into that era?
1: Yes. I mean, I research for for years. I mean, three, four, five years um, before I write. Um, getting the history right is very important to me. I'm not an historian, but I think if you decide to set things in real periods of history, you owe it to your reader to be telling them as it was, insofar as, you know, there are shades of interpretation, but basically you get it right. Um, So absolutely. So it's a mixture of obviously working in libraries, research, reading documents of the day, 13th century or the 19th century. The 19th century, you have other things like literature. Um, You know, sepulcher is a ghost story. So I was reading a lot of 19th century ghost stories, such as um, Maupassant, such as Henry James such as Algernon Blackwood, all of the greats of that period of writing. Mm. Um, You also have music and art that you can look to. In the 13th century, you're much more reliant on church records in museums that are on particular um, subjects. But I also like to do physical research. So in Slepical, for example, there's a dual scene. So I went along to an ancient um, weapons expert. I mean, the weapons, that is, not the man. Um, And... um, He showed me dueling pistols. He showed me how to fire them, how the catch went back. With Alais in Labyrinth, she's very handy with her sword. So I went to a fighting expert who does a lot of the, you know, fights for um, the big films that we've all seen, you know, Zorro and all of these Mm. things, and said, can you show me how you would hold a battle sword? What's the weight of it? How you cut and thrust? Um, I also obviously live and breathe the place, But I go one step further. So if I have one of my heroines or heroes walking from a village to another one, I've done that walk because I want to know when I say it takes two hours and 20 minutes, Mm. that it does. So I love the physical research as much as I like the book and learning research. And then the Internet I do use. It's really useful for verifying things or for looking. um, For example, now you can go online to the a a museum in New York that has lots of 19th century costumes in it and I can look at 25 different types of corsets say, online and I can choose a corset for my 19th century heroine to wear Mm. so I can write with great confidence that it does up at the front. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, in the old days you couldn't have done that, you would have had to be in the museum itself or look in a book with pictures. Um, So the internet is really good for that sort of stuff. It's very good for weather um, you know, I start sepulchre in a graveyard in Paris on the 25th of March, 1891. Mm. I could check that it was raining that day because of the internet, which Thank incredible. God for the internet. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but I never use it for real research because there's so much on the internet that's wrong. There's so much hearsay and gossip. There's so much that contradicts. So, you know, the real historical research you do with proper academic history. You don't, you don't and libraries and museums, and you do it yourself.
0: It sounds like you do an incredible amount of research because yeah, I've, sp- I I've spoken to some writers who actually do the writing first and then fill in the gaps later. Do you think it's important for you to do it the other way around?
1: For me, it's essential to do it the other way around because I write really fast-moving books. You know, they are adventures, you know, some people call them thrillers or or whatever, and I don't want to have to stop in the middle of the narrative to go and check if a man in the 19th century would have a beard or be clean shaven. Mm. I need to know that because if I was stopping to check details all the time, there'd be no pace in the book. So for me, I do all of that research. I have, you know, I mean, thousands and thousands of words of research, which will be divided up in, in my file into clothes, food, customs, this sort of stuff, literature. So if I have Leonie sit down, curl up in a chair and pick up a copy of the latest novel by Flaubert, Mm -hmm. I need to know what was published then. I can't be checking it. So for me, that's how I do it. For other people, they're really happy writing the story and then finding what they need to know. But I need to immerse myself in the world. And I I know from my readers that that's one of the things, I think that's why I have a lot of male readers, that they like the detail and the real history Mm -hmm. in it. And it's not just color it's not just background it's you know sharing real history and there's an imaginative story put on top of that real history if you like
0: do you ever find yourself having to pull back on the history because i imagine you research so much stuff that it's tempting to put a lot of information in which might not need to be there do you find you ever have to pull back on your absolutely, knowledge absolutely
1: absolutely that's exactly how it is that you must always remember in the end that it's a novel and when you hit a page which, you know, editors always called an info drop mm. where the author is, you know, put forty five pages of information about Visigoth tombs in because they know it. <laughs> and you you go, Yeah, okay, you know, you you've got to cut it. But the truth is that the reader knows. The reader can tell if you you know what you're talking about. Mm. So there might only be two sentences about a dress someone's wearing or the castle or the weapons in the battle. Mm. But it's the depth that lies underneath that. The reader can always tell if an author has done his or her work properly, her research properly. So you, you, you do have to be tough with yourself. Um, and also, often, the editor will keep saying, you need to get rid of this, really, you know, there's just too much. And you hang on and you hang on. <laughs> and when you come to read the final draft, you go, yeah, it's, as soon as a piece of research gets in the way of the story, as soon as you notice the research, you know it's got to go.
0: Now, your first book, Eskimo Kissing, is about a twin's search for her adoptive parents after her sister has died. What made you write this book?
1: Well, I—I I mean, the, the glib answer is that I was actually invited to write a novel, um, which of course is so annoying for people who are, <laughs> are working. But it was—I'd written two non-fiction books, and a fiction editor had read them and said you know what, I know these are non-fiction, but actually what you're doing is telling the the story of real people. Have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I thought, well, I'll have a go. Mm. Um, And I was was inspired to write that story because, and it's set in my hometown of Chichester. Um, I have two sisters, um, both of whom I love very dearly. One of them is adopted. And all the way through our childhood, we would play games on people because people would say the most incredibly crass things like, which is your real sister and stuff like this? And we would always pretend it would be different ones of us and all of this. But it meant that, obviously, I had quite a lot of feelings about the nature of blood versus the nature of inheritance versus the nature of nurture. You know, the nature-nurture argument. Are Mm. you who you are genetically or because of what people make you? Um, And, of course, as a parent, you know that it's a bit of both. (laughs) Mm. Um, But so that was where the story came from. And I was just very interested in the idea of... um, the story is a girl you know they're happy to be adopted these two these two girls it's made no difference to them they're quite proud about it but then one of the twins dies and a bombshell comes out of the blue which is the the surviving twin discovers they weren't twins after all so how does that change their relationship
0: and so did you find that transition to writing a novel, to writing fiction, after writing non fairly easy and natural or quite
1: difficult? Really difficult, and they're not very good. I wrote two novels. I'm really proud of them, Eskimo Kissing and Crucifix Lane, because I worked hard on them, and the, the basic story ideas were good. But I didn't find my writing voice until Labyrinth. Right. And so the thing that I say, I teach creative writing, and I say to our students all the time is, remember this, it's a key piece of information. The person you are as a reader is not necessarily the person you are as a writer.
2: Mm. So
1: you might love lit but you might not be able to write that. Your gift might be for literary fiction.
2: Mm. You might
1: love crime fiction, but you know what? Your gift might be in historical romance. And so it takes everybody a time to find. So when I read, look back on, I suppose, my first two novels, what I can see there is The product of having been a publisher and an editor, Mm. I can see someone looking for their writing voice who hasn't quite found it. And with Labyrinth and Sepulchre, I discovered, oddly, that my voice was big, old-fashioned adventure stories. It was epic stories with beginning, middle, end, clear moral landscape, big books, you know, big books based on history and research. This is not the sort of books that I was particularly reading, Mm. um, but that turns out to be where my, my skill lies. So that's the biggest piece of advice I ever did give, give to new writers: listen to your writing voice, and it's not necessarily your reading voice.
0: Great. Now, your nonfiction book, *Becoming a Mother*, is now in its sixth edition. What made you decide to write that in the first
1: place? Well, I was pregnant, and it's a book about <laughs> being pregnant. Yes. And you know, it was one of those very funny situations. I was just leaving publishing. Um, I was having lunch with a friend who's a literary agent. I was. Just pregnant with my second child, who is now 15.
2: Mm. My
1: eldest is 18. And there are lots of brilliant pregnancy books about the medicine and the uh, physical side of things. But I hated being pregnant. <laughs> and I wanted a book that was about what other women felt, not what was happening to them physically, but what they felt about the experience of being mm. pregnant. And I. Like um, many people, whenever I'm in any distress whatsoever, I turn to books. Mm. You know, I feel there's going to be a book that will sort me out here. Um, and so I was amazed that two years after being pregnant the first time, still the book I wanted didn't exist. It wasn't on the shelves. And I said this to this literary agent friend, and he called my bluff, and he said, well, why don't you stop moaning and write it? <laughs> and then I thought, well, I will. Okay. And that's how my writing career started. Did you always know you wanted to write? No. No, although people who knew, have known me all of my life said that I was was always writing, but it wasn't what I I didn't have this burning desire to be a writer. No, actually, I've come into that. I mean, that was why Labyrinth and Sepulcher are so significant to me, and why it's such incredible luck that they've both been, you know, international bestsellers. Mm. Is that I didn't realise until I was sitting down to write Labyrinth, I almost leapt up from the computer in shock when I thought, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Wow, that was the turning point for you. Yeah, yeah. So book four was when I thought, oh my God, I do want to be a writer. How interesting. Before that, Gosh. it had been like writing in the same way that I've done lots of things. I found it really fulfilling. Um, I was really challenging, really exciting. Um, but, you know, I do a lot of broadcasting. I work for the BBC, but I don't want to be a broadcaster. Mm, <laughs> mm. You know, I just enjoy doing that. Yes. Um but Labyrinth was different, and so that's why it was so lucky that it became this big success, and Sepulchre has followed in its shoes. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't always happen that way, and I, I'm I'm very grateful to the publishers um, that have supported me, have published me so well, and have made it possible for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what are you working on now?
1: I'm not working on anything at the moment, because this trip to Australia is my 12th of 15 Countries this year. Wow. For Sepulchre, um, I'm published in sep- for Sepulchre in Labyrinth, thirty-eight countries, mm. and I do want to support publishing outside of the UK. Mm. I think it's really important. Um, I think that the UK is very bad about supporting writers in other parts of the world. It's very bad about translation, and I feel it's important that as an author, I go to the countries that are publishing me and. Make an effort for them because they're making an effort for me. Mm. But it, it doesn't mean that you're in a very good place for sitting down and starting to think <laughs> quietly. So, so when I'm back at my desk in the autumn um, for England, which will be the beginning of your summer, I guess in October. Yes. Um, I will. I've got ideas at the back of my mind. I'm not pushing them at the moment.
2: Right. And once
1: I'm there, I'll be sitting down. I'll start to be thinking. I'm, I'm pretty sure of where, where I'm going. But until you sit down, sometimes. The best idea, when you actually turn the spotlight on it, turns to dust in your hands. Right. So you don't quite know whether it's going to work or not till you start to give it attention.
0: Will it be safe to say it will be a time slip novel?
1: I don't even know that. Right. Oddly. I mean, I think it will be, and I think it will be the third one of the trilogy and set in France. Right. But it might not be. Because the only way that you can keep going as a writer, particularly if you're like me and you write big books in length... yes you've got to really want to do it. You've got to be passionate about it. Oh yes. If you're not 100%, then it won't work. So it's that, really.
0: So your book Crucifix Lane is about Annie, who finds herself in the year 2008 in London, but then yeah. is thrown back to the year 1997. Now, you wrote the book in 1998. So what was it like to imagine London in 2008? And what's it like now that 2008 is here? And well, you know.
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad you've asked me that. Actually, because the thing that is so interesting for me about Crucifix Lane, which for me is the least successful of my novels, um, not least of all, I had a very close friend who was dying at the time. And it was, I can see that my mind was really not on something as trivial as writing a novel, frankly, Mm. you know. Um, But I can see, of course, it was a time slip novel. You know, it was was where I was going to end up, but without realizing it at the time. And it was very exciting to imagine the future. What is very odd is certain things have are really quite accurate. Mm. So, for example, I do have, um, you know, a lot of focus on the problem of weather and environmental change, biotechnology, mm. um, and the fears that London will flood. Well, we are in that world now. Um, so that's really interesting. I also have some of the old diseases coming back, like dengue, fever, and typhoid, this is also happening. Other things that I thought would have gone further haven't really changed so much. So I remember very clearly um, having, you know, we have a microwave where you put food in and it, it makes stuff hot really quickly. Mm. And I thought by 208 would have the opposite, that you put stuff in, um, I think I called it a ralentisi, you know, was something that slowed down the molecules to make something cold. Well, that hasn't yet hit the, uh, hit the high street. Um but it's it's very interesting looking back on that um, that some of the issues um, that you know I was not particularly involved in our environmental movements mm. um, I didn't you know and it wasn't a particular passion of mine um, but I, I I'm interested now looking back that I did pick on those things and you know I've been sitting watching Hurricane Gustav mm. Ike is coming in looking at those awful floods in northern India and those the human tragedy there unfolding all to do with water and flooding. And that's really what Crucifix Lane is about.
0: So what also inspired you to co-found the Orange Prize for Fiction?
1: Um, I was involved with, um, I mean, lots of people were involved in setting it up. I get the credit just because I'm the one with the that does all the chat about it. Right. Um, but there were lots of us involved, men and women involved. And it was a book, a shortlist in 1991 that had no women on it at all. Mm. And... Um, it wasn't a question of let's all have a moan about this or say that it's not fair or that there must be quotas in prizes because obviously that is absurd.
2: Mm. But it
1: was asking a very serious question about what is considered literature? And is it a matter of subject matter? Is it style? How can it be that in a year where 65% of the published novels were by women, mm. none of them were deemed good enough to be on the Booker shortlist? list? Mm. And out of that came um, a period of research which showed that, actually, although the majority of novels, something in the region of 62% of published novels in the UK eligible for the big prizes were by women, only 11% of books on the Booker Shortlist were by women. Mm. So it was clear that there was an issue. Nobody quite knew what it was, and it it wasn't silly and unfair, but there was an issue. And so we decided to found a prize that would celebrate international fiction by women, and the international element was very important because the Booker Prize um, is open to British and Commonwealth writers. Now, a lot of people find that quite offensive in this day and age. Mm. The idea that, you know, the places you invaded, they get to be in the prizes, but the others, no. Mm. <laughs> you know, so the, there was a dual purpose it was to celebrate international fiction and international writing by women. And in the 13 years it's been going, it has been enormously. Um, wonderful to see the huge wealth of international writing by women in English that has, has now been published in the UK um, and the prize was, fa- was very f- much founded with the idea of getting fabulous books by women into the hands of male and female readers who'd appreciate them
2: mm. and
1: that's the purpose of the prize and every year there'll be one or two people who will have a little bit of moan about it, but that's the same with all prizes, frankly. Um And sometimes it's presented as if, oh, you know, the the Orange Prize is terribly controversial. It was when it was founded. Mm. Now you'll get one or two people who will speak out. And this will be seen as an enormous debate, but it is always one or two people. And, you know, it's as daft as me coming to Australia and saying, you know, I'm not eligible for the Miles Franklin Award, therefore I'm going to try to get it shut down. (laughs) You know, it's fine. I'm not Australian. Great. (laughs) You know, there's no reason to not celebrate Australian writing because I'm not, you know... So it's been, you know, we're all very proud of it. And being in Australia at the moment, um, everywhere I go, Rose Tremaine's *The Road Home* is on the tables in bookstores. Mm. That's this year's Orange Winner. It was not here in May, but the book's been out a year. So for me, that's enormously satisfying. And um, you know, and you just you just feel very pleased to have played a part in getting great writers a slightly bigger readership.
2: Mm,
0: I think it's a wonderful idea. Now, when you are writing, can you describe to us your typical working day so we can see, you know, what happens on the day-to-day basis for
1: you? <laughs> well, yes, what happens, um, you, you put your finger on it uh, earlier, is that I have a totally different life when I'm researching and preparing to write a novel from what the life I have when I'm actually writing. Yeah. Um, so when I'm writing, I clear the deck completely apart from family i i'm not doing broadcasting i don't do orange prize i don't do any of my other commitments and i write very intensely for maybe 10 hours a day seven days a week
0: 10 hours
1: yeah no i i'm a real <laughs> sprinter when i'm writing i get i need to immerse myself completely and what i do is i get up really early you know horrifyingly early <laughs> um and i start and i sit at my desk you know in the dark with a Black of you know black coffee, lots of sugar, and I love to be writing. Start writing every day while the house is still asleep. That makes sense because then you don't get diverted by the day. You you get a lot of work under your belt, and so I'll write until everybody else gets up. And then there'll be a bit of breakfast and kids off to school and college. Then I'll write some more. Then there'll be a bit of lunch. Then I'll write a little bit into the afternoon, um, but only till about two o'clock. And then I'll stop. I'm really hopeless at writing in the afternoon. Um, I just, you know, I just want to go to sleep. And I'd probably go for a swim or a walk with my dog, um, something physical. Mm. Because as um, anybody who's listening knows, who's a writer as well. One of the biggest enemies to the amount that you can get done is physical stress, back stress, shoulder stress, typing away, you know, Mm. writing away, whatever you do. And then when I'm getting near the end of the writing, I'll go back to it in the evening as well, but at the beginning, when I'm doing the first draft, it will very much be you know that big chunk for the early very early morning through the morning and to the early afternoon, and then I'll stop wow um, and um you know and often i i usually work in my pajamas, you know I get straight out of bed and go straight to my computer
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I've been known to Put a coat on over the pyjamas and take the kids to school without actually <laughs> still getting Because it's, again, you, it, what the minute you get dressed, you become a person in the world somehow. Whereas when you, you're you just at home, you become, you know. So I, I start to look like a Karen community play, patient. You know, I flop around in pyjamas and slippers and no makeup and rubbish hair. and mm. But it's great because it means that you never become your public self. And that keeps me rooted to the book.
0: And what kind of time period do you sustain this for, as in over a period of weeks or months or or what?
1: Um, I suppose I do it in birth. So the first draft I would do maybe over a month. Then I'll take a breather and, you know, have a bit of sleep and be a bit more normal. Um, And then the second draft and the final draft might be about six to eight weeks but mm. I'll but I'll write in between times. I'll do a, a chapter here, a chapter there. So I suppose the writing period in all lasts about seven to ten months. Mm. Um, but I'm not getting up at four every morning and writing for ten hours a day every day of that seven months.
2: No. Um,
1: you know, you have spurts, and it's like climbing a mountain. I and mean, it's a, cl- a terrible cliché to use, but you know, you climb a mountain, then you have a plateau, and you get your breath back, and yeah. you, you know, regroup. Then you go the next bit, and then So it's like that for me. But I find it works better for me, the process being really intense, um, Mm. because my books are complex because of the time slip element and Mm. having two different heroines to deal with or two different heroes who are women, as I often think of them. Um, And I suppose for me, therefore, that keeping that adrenaline going, because the books that I write are driven by pace, they're not literary fiction where reflection and sentence by sentence is the priority. For me, it is the story, the characters, the pace of the book. You have to write quite fast, Mm. otherwise it goes baggy. Mm, mm, mm.
0: So after potentially years of research, you have kind of a seven to ten-month gestation period for the actual writing? Yes. Goodness. Sounds very intensive. Now, and finally, what advice would you give to aspiring writers?
1: Well, this is going to sound ridiculous, but the key piece of advice is write. (laughs) Because we meet um, so many people, my husband and I, on the courses we teach, who tell us all the reasons why they haven't yet got time to write. Right. (laughs) And we all know this. It is really true. Mm. But the biggest enemy of, of, of writing is being intimidated and being sure that you can only write if the time is right, if you've got long enough to write, if the light is coming in. Um, You don't have any commitments for your family, all of these things. Five minutes a day is better than no minutes a day. Mm. Every word does not have to be perfect first time. It is not a divine thing. It is hard work writing. So what I say to people is a lot of people know they want to write, but they're not quite sure what their story is or who their characters are. But it's like going to the gym. You go to the gym every day, And you get a little bit fitter, a little bit fitter, a little bit fitter. And then you know what? You're ready to run that marathon. The same with writing. Mm. You get fit, you know, match fit, if you like. You do little things. You don't know what to write. Describe the room you're sitting in. Throw it in the bin. It doesn't matter.
2: Mm.
1: Everything you write does not have to be part of the great novel. Um, So that's my biggest advice, because there are so many people who've got great ideas, great stories, but excuse themselves for not getting on with it. And it's true. You've got young children really hard, but it's better to stand in the kitchen and jot down three ways of describing the teabag than not write. So that's the key piece of information so that when your idea strikes you, a story comes to you, your characters come up to you and go, Hi, here I am. Write me a story. You're ready to go. You're absolutely good to go.
0: Wonderful advice and on that note well we especially love Labyrinth at the Sydney Writers Centre and want to thank you for your time today Kate.
1: Thank you very much and uh, I'm delighted to have talked to the Writers Centre. I've heard such great things about it and I'm, I really hope next time I'm back promoting my new book um, I'll be over for publication next time that I'll be able to come and see something and do something with you.
0: That'd be great. Okay then. Thanks. Thank you. ValerieKoo.com. that's Valerie Koo, khoo.com Thank you for listening.